Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, is Canada undergoing a Chinification and would a new constitution solve this? I talk about it with Bruce Party and Patricia Adams. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. And I apologize ahead of time if I'm not my usual bouncy, dynamic self today. I I don't know if I have COVID or something else, but I I have something. And my voice is uh, just a a little bit more strained than I like it to be. But you know what? We've got two fantastic guests that will uh, help me with the heavy lifting. Maybe they'll do all of it and you won't even need me. And I can just, you know, bow out and take an early weekend midway through this. Not an April Fool's joke, what we're talking about now. The uh, memories of the convoy and the federal government's response to it are very strong. Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act. We instantly saw a crackdown on the streets of Ottawa and also in bank accounts of people across the country. And despite the promise of oversight and scrutiny, we really haven't seen that just yet. And there was a fantastic piece I read in the Epic Times about this that said after two days to flatten the bouncy castle... Canada needs a new constitution. The The upshot of it is that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms really didn't protect Canadians from these very heavy-handed measures by the government. And I want to talk to the co-authors of this piece. One of them is Bruce Party, who should be no stranger to a lot of you tuning in as he's been on the show before. He is a Queen's University law professor and also the executive director of Rights Probe. And also Patricia Adams, who's an economist and president of the Energy Probe Research Foundation and Probe International. Uh, Bruce, Patricia, thank you both so much for coming on today. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Thank thanks for having us. Uh, let me start with you on, on this, because Bruce, you've had an opportunity to talk to my audience before. Patricia hasn't. So I'll start with you, Patricia. What was it that brought you to the position that you put out in this piece here? That, you know what, there's something that Canadians need to know about how they're not being protected by this document that they're told, even as the Emergencies Act was being invoked, was safeguarding their rights. What intrigues me most about it, about the situation that we face, is that it's very similar to what our colleagues in China also face. And they issued in 2008 um, a charter which was modeled on the Helsinki Charter. Um, uh, not the, I'm sorry, not the Helsinki, but the uh, the one that came out of the Czechoslovakia, Charter, charter 77. And uh, it called for many of the... the um, uh, protections that we thought we had uh, that we don't have. And our colleagues who we've worked with for 30 years, and that includes lawyers and journalists and um, uh, accountants and economists and so on, have have tried to model uh, reforms in their own country based on those that we have. Well, ours are not working very well. And I think this comes as a surprise to them. And I, I had great difficulty in explaining to them how we don't have a Chinese Communist Party censorship system, but we have censorship in our mainstream media. How does that happen? It's very puzzling to them. Why does this happen? So uh, this is one of the things that intrigues me about the current situation in Canada is that we seem to be coming a lot closer to China uh, than than they are to us, but we're we're becoming a lot more like them, and and the similarities are are quite disturbing. Um, and I think one of them that bothers me the most is what appears to be uh, the creation of accusations and infractions of the law 
against people who are really uh, criticizing government policy. It's very common in China. That's what they do all the time. Whenever anybody wants to engage in a discussion about public policy, they very often end up in jail. Um, first of all, they're accused of picking quarrels and provoking trouble, um, and then they end up in jail. So uh, there, there, there's some similarities. I think there's been an erosion of our rights uh, in Canada, and um, uh, it, it's uh, very disturbing to me because it seems like the trend line is not a good one that we're that we're seeing in Canada. Yeah, and I, and I think a lot of people use the Chinas and the North Koreas and the Venezuelas of the world to to rest on our laurels in the West and say, well, you know, it's not like we're doing that. It's not like we're as bad as they are. And I think it deflects from some very real problems we do see in, in Canada specifically. And, and I want to talk to you both about this. Let me ask you, Bruce, about one in particular, because if you were to poll most Canadians on the street and say, do we have press freedom in Canada? They think, oh, yeah, absolutely. We have journalists that are right to are able to criticize the government. People have free speech. They generally would believe that to be the case, even though you and I can go through a laundry list of, of ways in which government can and, and does limit free speech. But you look at the convoy, for example, and the day after police did the big breakdown of it, it was a Sunday. I was walking out of my hotel in downtown Ottawa and police were questioning me, asking me to justify why I was walking down a street. I would say, well, I'm a journalist, I'm covering what's happening, and they'd say, prove it. Well, press freedom is part of freedom of expression. It's not a special category that journalists have as far as freedoms are concerned. But, but right there, I couldn't wave my charter in the face and say, I have press freedom. On the ground, I didn't. Right. Yeah. So, so this is a very difficult thing for people to get their head around because we have a charter that's written in black and white, and it says we have freedom of expression along with a number of other freedoms. And so they think, well, it therefore must exist. And yet in its execution, like the situation that you're describing, it often just isn't so. And so how, how can that be? And the, and the answer in part is that governments are now in the practice of doing things indirectly so that they do not directly infringe the charter and get into trouble. So a lot of the things that have been done during COVID, for example, the, 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 the providing of authority to uh, employers, for example, to require vaccination. Now, that's not holding you down and making you get a jab or fining you if you don't. It is simply providing the authority to other parties to do that. So when when people come up and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm being forced to vaccinate against my will without consent. The problem is that that's not exactly true. And the protection you have, you have liberty, you have security of the person. It's not clear that those rights have been directly infringed, just like in the situation that you're talking about. It's not like they said, well, you can't print or you can't speak as a journalist. You just shouldn't be here right now because there's an emergency. Right. So it, it, it's 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 done strategically and done carefully so that the constitutional protections that we appear to have just don't seem to work. 
what Bruce is saying there, Patricia, strikes me as from my limited understanding, I'm not an expert in China, but something I do understand about China, which is that the blurring of the line between the public sphere and the private sphere, between the state and, and private enterprise. Now, I, I'd say that, you know, the line is, is more blur than line at this point, because we know that even ostensibly private corporations all have the, the tentacles of the state in them in some way. But it, it does sound like that is part of the same dynamic there of, you know, the gov- even when government's not doing something that doesn't mean government isn't behind a layer or two from what's happening yeah and really government is behind everything that happens in china and it's true there are private enterprises uh, that's actually one of the things that the charter 08 uh, signatories asked for was the right to start a business you know it's interesting that they would put that in there um, but all of the big private corporations like Alibaba, Ant, and so on, are essentially run by the government. The government um, is there. They've got committees uh, internally. If the moment Jack Ma steps out of line, uh, he disappears. Very common. But there is the the head of a major corporation who simply disappeared. Uh, And so they're they're everywhere. They they influence everything. So, for example, if you if you are a journalist in China now, of course, you everybody works for state media. That wasn't always the case. There was a private uh, media company, an excellent media company in the south part of the country. Oh, 10, 15 years ago, they had some freedom, but not total freedom. But if you're a journalist, you walk in to your job on your shift. The very first thing you do is you read the list of subjects that must not be covered that day. So that's exactly backwards to what we think a journalist should do. If you're a journalist here, hopefully you go into your shift and you want to find the story that's news and you want to beat everybody else to it. Not there. You, you, You get that list. You must not cover these subjects. Well, of course, what's interesting about that list is that's really the news. The, the list that they're given of things they must not cover is what's really interesting. So they are everywhere. The state is everywhere. And one of the things that Charter 08 signatories asked for was an end to the, the, uh, the criminalization of words. And this is something that Bruce has spoken about um, in, in the current situation here, uh, that it, it is against the law to criticize the government. So if you do, you're, you're in big trouble. And that applies even to the country's top constitutional law scholar. He is now under house arrest. He's not allowed to teach. He has no job. He has no income. He can't use the internet. He's a top scholar in the country. Uh, and he, he dared to criticize President Xi and the governance system. So it affects academics, it, it affects NGOs, and NGOs really aren't non-governmental organizations, they're mostly governmental. It affects pri- the, the so-called private sector, of course, it affects the state-owned enterprises. It really, the, the Chinese Communist Party controls everything, all aspects of society. This is one respect in which the situation in Canada is becoming closer to that in China, right? So you have, we, we have, uh, an aggressive, expanding administrative state that is involved in more and more things over time. With respect to the press, for example, it's not that the government is telling the press, here's what you can say and here's what you cannot say. Instead, the government is subsidizing legacy media. And, and it, so they don't have to, 
They don't have well, to. And in some cases, regulating, expanding the uh, the ambit of its regulatory powers to go after online publishers. So it, it is becoming bigger and, and bringing more people in it, its regulatory orbit. Right. But exactly so. Exactly so. But the, but the more the more influence and control the government has, in fact, the less explicit the instruction has to be. You don't have to pass a statute yeah. saying here are the things you can't say. You don't have to. Because if you are a certain kind of media outlet, you know where your interests lie and you know what kind of story that you, you, know, you, should, you should be telling. And of course, there's a very much shared ideology in all of these kinds of institutions. So there's not much, very much pushing that has to happen. When, when your government and your business interests and your media are all on the same page about what is true and what is good, then you're, you're likely to fall into a situation where dissent from that belief will, will get you into hot water. Patricia, what Bruce is talking about there, I find fascinating because in, in a lot of contexts, the worst thing than being told what you can't say is to just inherently know that you aren't supposed to say it. It's that self-censorship, which Orwell talked about, which a lot of people have talked about in the era of political correctness, that uh, is more insidious than censorship because you, you can't really blame someone. You can't challenge it. It's just about, I know what's going to happen if, if I step out of line. And, and I, I, I would assume that when you talk about people disappearing, that's very much the fear in China as well, is that even if that list weren't there when they went into work, they just know that if I cross this line, something bad is going to happen. For sure. And the professor that I just spoke about, the, the constitutional law professor, um, when he was put under house arrest, he was defended by a very prominent publisher in the country. Well, then she was arrested and then her husband was arrested. So they're all in jail now. So it's it, in China, they, they say, you know, you kill the chicken to scare the monkey. Um, and that's exactly what they do. And of course, when somebody is, is picked up and disappears, um, it affects the entire family and not just the, the the immediate family but the extended family it, it affects your friends um anybody who's associated with that person then becomes suspect it breaks families up you can imagine what it does uh, the stress that it puts on on spouses and on children on parents grandparents and so on and and they're they're it's especially cruel um you know we're not that at, at this point yet in canada but in there what they will do is when they pick somebody up and somebody disappears they no one knows where they are and there have been many situations where um the spouses will walk from prison to prison looking for their husbands in these cases and they will literally go and say have you got my husband here and of course the officials are under no obligation to admit that they have so they just say no and and so this can go on for months and months and months and in some cases they're they're very um brave lawyers in the country who are called the 709 lawyers they were there were 300 of them rounded up in 2015 on july uh, the 9th and they are essentially asking for the enforcement of the law because the law from the communist party's point of view is there for them to use. And uh, so these lawyers will try to defend people. And if they step out of line from the government policy, they will be arrested. And then, <laughs> and then the lawyers that their families are hired to defend them, they get arrested. So it's just, it, there's a, an extreme amount of fear. And I think it's starting to happen here. I think people in Canada, doctors are afraid of their regulatory boards. 
lawyers may may have to worry also about being disciplined. Um, I think all kinds of people, especially after the the funds of the donors to the um, the Freedom Convoy were had their their accounts frozen, then people had to worry that maybe they were going to be associated mm-hmm. um, with the convoy. So this. The, the, the fear spreads quietly and it's very insidious. And, and I'm sure that it's going on in the country right now. But we have to resist becoming the monkeys. No, I was going to say one thing we should point out is that there are court challenges to the invocation of the Emergencies Act, which haven't been heard yet. So we don't know for sure if the courts will, will uphold the way the act has been used. But part of the concern is the record uh, through the rest of the COVID era. And there've been lots of challenges for, to, to, to COVID rules of various sorts. And the, the success in the courts on those grounds has been very, very limited. And so in that respect, it seems like on the, on the whole, the, the, the courts have, have embraced the government narrative over the, the so-called pandemic. Uh, so as we, as, as, you know, we, we, we will await to see what happens to the challenges to the Emergencies Act. But the disturbing thing at the moment is that the government uh, appears to have believed that what they did is perfectly fine, charter compliant. And if no charter, if, if charter rights happened to have been infringed, then surely they will be considered a, a, a reasonable limit under Section 1. Since you bring up reasonable limits, let me ask about that, because I, I know a lot of people have brought up this idea that, that that's the real problem of the Charter, is that you have this one section that basically is being used by governments, and in, in many cases, courts, as a, as a trump card for violating other sections. And I, I spoke a few weeks back with Brian Peckford, a former Premier of Newfoundland, who was a Premier when the Charter was inked, and, and he believes that the section has a, an important role, but that uh, governments and, and courts are, are distorting the, the meaning of that role but but if you were to take that out does that solve the problem or is that too simplistic a, a proposed solution to the structural concerns that you're raising about Canada's charter it would not solve the problem it it would probably be better off without it given its history but it would not solve the problem the problem in some of these cases is getting even getting over the threshold of establishing that a charter right has been infringed in the first place you don't get to section one until you, you establish that the, the, the right has been infringed. Yeah, that 2B has been infringed or 7 has been infringed. Yeah, you still have or, to demonstrate that. Exactly so. And, and as I was saying, in some situations, getting over that threshold will be difficult. So going back to my vaccine mandate uh, example, if, if you are required to get a vaccine in order to keep your job, and let's just for the sake of argument say the job is with a government so that the charter applies to it, it's not clear that that's a violation of your liberty or or security of the person because you're not actually being made to. That's the way it's being characterized. That the story being told is, no, this is a choice. You can get the vaccine or you can get another job. But of course, the, the, the broader the practice, the less likely it is you can get another job because all of them require you to get a vaccine. So the question is, at what point does the, the broad requirement across the board constitute a, 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 essentially the equivalent of a mandatory vaccine. And um, that, that question hasn't been asked, but that, that's, that's an example of one of the weaknesses in the way these charter rights have been expressed. 
I'll put that to you, Patricia, because obviously this Charter 8 that your Chinese colleagues have put forward has things that would be great in a a liberal democracy to have enshrined in a written constitution and then enshrined in in law. But, But even if that were to happen, it wouldn't force governments to comply unless there's a, a, I mean, an infrastructure there that uh, can enforce government compliance. And also if there's a a cultural desire and a cultural impetus in a society to do it, there are lots of dictatorships that have written constitutions that on paper would suggest the country respects all sorts of rights that it doesn't actually. So, I mean, even if something like this were in place in China, it wouldn't deal with any of these underlying concerns that Chinese citizens have. I completely agree. And I, I think this is where we meet each other. Um, and I think they they realize that too, because they their constitution isn't that bad. And they've actually got some good laws. The problem is the courts are really the Chinese Communist Party courts. They're doing the bidding of the Chinese Communist Party. It, the, the laws are there to serve the party, not to serve the people. Um, so they've got an extreme case of of what what I hope we never get to, um, and that the only way, as you as you say, uh, to change this is for the people to say we won't we won't stand for it. We'll throw this government out of power, or we will have so many legal challenges to make our point. I mean, there there I guess lots of ways that you can uh, you can change public opinion and change the culture so that the courts uh, follow the people. Um, uh, I mean, one of one of the problems I think is that government has become so big, has so many regulations, controls so much of our lives that we really are beholden to to the government. So we're afraid of of governments and regulators and officials, um, and we've we've forgotten the. Yeah, I don't know if if you if you remember this, but when I was a kid growing up. If you were in a playground and another child said to you or a bully, you know, tried to get you to do something you didn't want to do, you would say, you can't make me do that because this is a free country. We all said it. We all knew that expression and we said it to each other all the time. And it was a way of dealing with mean kids as well and bullies. Um, But would a child today ever think of that? Hmm. Would would do do Canadians think that way? Um, we should be a free country. We were a free country. And and but I think that there's been a shift in the culture towards the nanny state. And with that has come a fear of officials. And that's where where we are, we're like the monkeys. We're we're afraid. Um, I think and I yeah. somehow we have to change that culture. I, I, I think that's right on the money. I think that's I think that's one of the keys to this that one of the things that is not provided for in our constitution, in the charter or otherwise, not in an explicit way, is the existence of a nanny state, the existence of an expansive administrative welfare state. I mean, it it has happened, it has grown, it it has taken over the governance of the country, but it's not provided for in the constitution. And yet, in moments where it's in doubt whether or not the administrative state, this managerial state can coexist with the various, the other constitutional provisions that do exist. Often the Supreme Court has proceeded apparently with the presumption that the administrative state must be allowed to exist and function because it is a given 
that we, we cannot have a civilized country without it. And as long as we are proceeding with that assumption, then we are in a lot of trouble because that means the needs of the administrative state essentially come first. And whatever it needs to do in order to do its programs and directives and subsidies and planning and so forth, that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that will be carved out and made room for. And what we really need is, is, is a constitutional regime that puts that ability into question, essentially a constitution that says, no, 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 no. This nanny state is incompatible with our individual rights. The nanny state has to go, not the rights. When I read some of the COVID uh, court decisions that have come out in the last two years, it, it has been quite astonishing just how deferential to the idea of government. I don't even mean the specific government, but to the, that idea that Bruce describes of big government uh, in, in solving this. Like some of the decisions were, were accepting as a given. Well, obviously government needs to do X, Y, Z. And I'm like, well, wait, th this wasn't demonstrated. So, so I think there is something to that, that uh, we, we as a society, and I think courts have internalized this, Patricia, have just sort of accepted that government is the answer to most questions. Mm -hmm. And I think we also trust uh, the government. And that's where Chinese citizens have a huge advantage over us. They don't trust the government. They've seen the worst of it. Um, and in Charter 08, they refer to the overlords, getting rid of the overlords and this top-down control because they know how evil it can be and, and how, well, how really hard on the citizens' lives that it can be. But I think in Canada, we, we haven't seen that, uh, maybe until COVID. Now we're starting to see um, a, a very aggressive government that's forcing people, uh, not directly as Bruce points out, but, but not leaving people with much choice to get a vaccine or not, even if they think that it's not good for their health. Um, so, so I think we're starting to get a taste of what, what that uh, very authoritarian type of government that the Chinese citizens are very used to, they, they completely understand. We don't, we don't really, we haven't internalized that because I think we think the nanny state is a nice nanny. It's like Mary Poppins, you know, but it's, it's not. It, it, the potential for abuses are huge and they, and they are, they're happening. One thing that we hear a lot of talk about in, in Canada now, which we haven't really, is this idea of social credit. And, and whenever you say it, people immediately kind of put their uh, you know, clothes off and think you're delving into conspiracy theory. But we do know in China, the, the social credit system is very real. And in Canada, we don't have a, a China-esque social credit system that's been proposed. But we do have government putting forward aspects that it thinks are, are values of citizenship. And, and now vaccination status is one of them. You have to be vaccinated to be on a plane. You have to be vaccinated to work for the public service. So how concerned are you that, that a more ingrained social credit style system of some kind, even if it's an unofficial thing, could take hold in Canada? Oh, very much. It's in the works already in various provinces in the federal government. And the, the COVID vaccine passport is a good example of what's possible. It's, and it's easy, it's easy. So once you combine these two things, a, a, a digital ID that you can use on your phone, along with the potential for a digital currency, you put those two things together. And that means the government essentially is able to keep track of every single transaction that happens in the country. And that's not the kind of surveillance that, that you want if, if, if if you want to believe that you live in a free country. And so 
there's nothing on the table right now that says, oh, you know, we're going to bring in a digital ID. It's going to be compulsory. You have to do this. You have to do that. It's a social credit system. That's not the way these things work. You start out by developing a system that's convenient for people. And people can choose to use the digital ID or the normal thing that they have. Um, it, it'd be completely voluntary. Don't worry about it, everybody. It's voluntary. It's not compulsory. No big deal. You're overreacting. It's a conspiracy theory. You introduce it. You, some people adopt it. You get people used to it. And then sometime down the road, you say, oh, well, you know what? The other system's too old now. It's out of date. It's too much of a pain in the ass. We're just going to have the digital ID left. And in order to operate your life, to get to renew your driver's license, to go to the hospital, to buy your groceries, as the case may be, even maybe even to drive your car, you, you know, you have to use the digital ID because that's just what we have. And and people, because it's being introduced carefully in this way, uh, I have uh, I'm afraid that people will simply see it as a convenience and not detect. The, the the very dark potential that that lies beneath and not very far beneath, frankly. Well, one interesting aspect of that, again, to deflect against the people that are invariably saying, oh, that's conspiracy theory. When the vaccine passports came out in my province of Ontario and, and most places, you could just go in and, and show basically any old piece of paper that said you were vaccinated if you wanted to go and, and eat. And by the end of the program, if even if you had been triple dosed, quadruple dosed, you had a you know certified notarized authorization from the CDC that you were vaccinated, unless you were using that particular government QR code, it would not be accepted. And the government said, well, it's re respecting privacy rights and all of that. But this idea of something starting out as a convenience and ending up as mandatory within a system it is not foreign, and we have precedent for it within the last six months. Patricia, has China ever done what Bruce has described there, which is putting something out and saying it's an option if you want it? Or has China generally gone straight to, you must do this? Well, I think they've gone straight to, you must do this. And what the way they started it actually was to document people who had been picking corals and provoking trouble. So uh, that's how it all got going. And, and then if you if you happen to step out of line and say the wrong thing about the government, then they they can track. Everybody's got an identification there anyway. Everybody's got cell phones. So they would well, and, and the, the closed circuit surveillance ha yeah. has been massive. I saw something a while ago where they picked a guy out from the city of Beijing, I think within five minutes. Yes. Yeah. So they they are tracking people all the time. They've been tracking people for many years. Um, it, but in the old days, it was it was much harder because they, they would have to have eyes on on uh, somebody. But now they can do it electronically. Um, and during the Olympics, what they forced all the participants, the athletes, the coaches, uh, all the support staff and so on, had to use a particular app going in um, uh, if they were going to be in the village, the Olympic village. And everybody realized, including um, Citizen Lab, which is based at the University of Toronto, that this was a very compromised app, would allow the government to have access to virtually the Chinese government to virtually everything on your cell phone. So I think most people who went to the Olympics took burner phones because they, they wanted to somehow restrict it, um, the, the Chinese government's um, uh, access to your to all of your data. So they, they are very good at this. I mean, they, they've been surveying people 
for, for years and years and years. And they're of course surveying the internet and they it's very hard for citizens today inside, inside China to get over the wall. Still, they have a wall that, that VPNs will assist them um, getting access, but still it's very difficult for them to get over the wall. And it's dangerous to use a VPN as well. If you're caught using one, then you're in trouble. When we look at the way forward, Bruce, you and I have had a number of discussions where uh, we, we tend to just outdo each other on just depressing everyone so much uh, about the state of affairs here. But but you ended, or it might have been Patricia, I don't know who ended it actually, so I might uh, have to eat crow here, but ended this column with uh, somewhat of an optimistic note, which was that no one would have thought Canada could be on the front lines of, of this revolutionary idea we're talking about. And I mean that in a, a philosophical sense, not a violent sense, but you said that was before for the truckers. So do either of you, and I'll start with you, Bruce, think that we are on the cusp of something or could be on the cusp of something that serves as a positive turning point in Canada? Could be, yes. Could be. I mean, it's not a sure thing at all. Only time will tell. I, I, I hope it will. I mean, the, the, the truckers created a moment in which an awful lot of Canadians saw themselves in what the truckers were doing. And, and, and didn't realize that there were so many other people who thought what they did. And so there was a real coming together. I mean, I, w- I was in Ottawa for a few days to take it in and, and give some commentary. And, you know, what I saw in the crowd was, was um, joyful. I mean, they were happy. They were happy to have discovered each other, I think. And, and when people describe them dancing in the snow, I mean, they're being accurate. This is what they were doing. They were waving flags, dancing in the snow, cheering on, singing, you know, playing with their kids on the Bounty Castle and so on. It was really a, a, a not just a friendly crowd, but a, but a joyous one. And uh, it is that kind of spirit that I hope will be lasting and will 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 cause people to believe that actually there's something here, um, something that that as a country was not apparent before. As a country, you know, as a country, we have the reputation for being obedient followers, and for the most part, through through COVID, we we lived up to that. All our governments of all political stripes were very much on the same page about the very heavy-handed measures they brought down. There'd been relatively little resistance to it until this time. And the, 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 the fact of, of creating this idea that maybe, just maybe, the answer is no, not anymore, got attention from around the world. And, you know, as, I, as we said in the column, you know, no one would have thought that maybe the, the tipping point or, or, or the inflection point between these two choices might have started here. But, you know, maybe so. And I'll end with you on this, Patricia. Do you think that there is reason for optimism in Canada? And also, if you could speak to China, is there ever going to be a convoy moment in China within our lifetimes? Um, on, on Canada... Uh, I, I am hopeful. I, I think what the truckers did was they brought people together who had been separated and segregated by our governments. And I think people were feeling very, very sad about the state of the country. And then when there was this very graphic illustration, when the truckers started in Vancouver and started driving across the country and gaining strength and more people joined them, more truck 
trucks joined them. The convoy was what, 70 kilometers long. People were cheering them along the side of the, the road and on the overpasses. Um, I think people were reminded that this is a very good and decent country. People are good. But I think during the last two years, it's become um, a meaner and nastier country where people have been, have been turned against each other. And I think in a way that that's been the most depressing thing for Canadians and the, and the truckers broke through that. They, they brought together people and just the people who, who didn't even go to see the convoy would watch it on TV and see the flags and the signs and mm -hmm. people cheering. And I think people, people were reminded that this is a good country um, because I think we've been told for two years that, that we're not that there, there 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 are some bad people in this country um and that's that's been a very discouraging thing and i think the fact that it's spread around the world is really really interesting and it was picked up everywhere maybe except china i did send messages through to colleagues to say have you heard about this trucker convoy um i don't think they would get very much information about it whether it will ever come to china i hope so uh, there there are a lot of um a lot of people in the country who are fed up with the the, the control. I mean, it's more than control. It's it, it's the oppression of uh, by the government of the people. And I would never say that that's going to last in China. I I don't know how it can because I think there, there's more and more communication between Chinese citizens and the rest of the world, and they see what the alternatives are. But they they are just as as savvy, maybe more savvy about the dangers. Um, with government. And we have a lot to learn from them. Well, we'll hold out hope for the uh, convoy to Beijing and hopefully uh, reclaiming Hong Kong as well, though I know that's a, another discussion entirely. I want to give a huge uh, thank you to both uh, Bruce Party and uh, Patricia Adams for writing this piece. You can read it at the Epic Times after two days to flatten the bouncy castle. Canada needs a new constitution. Uh, a lot to chew on in there, and I, I'm glad we were able to extrapolate it on it here. Bruce, Patricia, thank you both so much. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Be well. Yep. That'll do it. Thank you again so much to Bruce and Patricia. I'm glad I made it through. I did that all in one take, believe it or not. Thanks to you for tuning in. Do have a fantastic weekend. I'm going to be off next week, but my colleagues at True North have you covered with great content, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks for more full-strength The Andrew Lawton Show, we hope. If you want to support the work True North is doing and keep the lights on for this show, you can do that by heading over to donate.tnc.news, donate.tnc.news. We'll talk to you soon, folks. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.